Hello, and welcome to the third season of the Pioneers Wanted podcast. This show is all about pioneers, the rule breakers and game changers who show all of us the route to a better future. We might be in season three, but the context remains stubbornly unchanged. We're grappling with the economic consequences of Brexit, and we're trying to see beyond the COVID-19 pandemic. Business as usual doesn't really exist in the way it used to, yet many of our most powerful businesses don't seem to have got the memo. It's time to embrace a radically different model for leadership in our largest organisations, pioneer leadership. My name is Philip Clark. I'm more excited than ever about the power of pioneer leadership to transform business culture, society and our economy. Because we all need to learn to play a long game, to disrupt the status quo and to chase a more purposeful future. And you know what? I'm so convinced that we all need to embrace pioneer leadership that I wrote a book about it. It's cleverly titled Pioneers Wanted, a manifesto for radically ambitious leadership. And you'll find it at pioneerswanted.com. So on this podcast, I interview pioneers from all walks of life, exploring their outlook, enjoying their character, admiring and learning from their audacity. And in this episode, I was joined by some old friends, the founding partners of innovation agency Market Gravity, just as they're launching their new venture, StudioWorks. We explored scalable cultures, social leadership, and the importance of remaining hungry. Enjoy the episode. On this podcast, we love to catch up with pioneers that have established new and different ways of engaging with the world, even more so when those ways of working have become established and embedded in large and powerful organizations. That's one of the things that's so special about pioneers. By establishing their ambitious breakthroughs as the industry standard, they get immense leverage and drive substantive change. We also enjoy exchanging insights on the challenge of pioneer leadership, learning the lessons from those rare instances when our largest organizations escape the herd and do something really noteworthy. And at other times, we love to hang around with entrepreneurs who see the opportunity, grab it, and accelerate their vision at speed, creating ventures which move the needle and themselves often spin off and enable other highly successful businesses. My guests today have done all three, establishing and mainstreaming a fresh take on customer-centered design, delivering some breakthrough work with corporate entrepreneurs, and they're now set on accelerating the fortunes of a new cohort of independent creative agencies. I'm not sure how we'll fit all of that into one podcast, but let's try. Welcome to the show, Gideon Hyde and Pete Saban. Great to be here. Hi, Phil. It's lovely to be here, mate. So guys, we know each other pretty well. We've been friends for a long time and colleagues for even longer. But there's lots about kind of the making of both of you that I don't really know. So perhaps starting with you, Pete, let's dive into those early years. Tell us about the world you grew up in and the things and the people that shaped your outlook, your worldview, whether there were any early signs of that pioneer within. Okay. So I suppose as a kid, I always... I always love making things. I was in the workshop most of the time at the back of our garage as a, as a young kid, cutting things up, taking things apart, and sometimes putting them back together again, you know, in the right kind of order. But I also, apparently, my first, you know, the answer to that, what do you want to do when you grow up question, my first ambition was to be a demolition expert. And I was fascinated, apparently, one time when we, uh, we witnessed the demolition of, uh, of an old cinema in the town where I grew up. And that wrecking ball was also a great fascination to me. So I think there's something in there about, you know, the first act of creation being destruction. So I think I, I probably as a child had a healthy mix of those two and that maybe shaped a little bit my entrepreneurial ambitions later in life. Love it. Gids, what about you? Uh, this is fun. I'm learning a lot about Pete. I guess my early years were heavily influenced by how I was brought up. My mum and dad actually separated when I was quite young. They're good friends today, I'm pleased to say. But I had a mum who was, um, let's say, very much my mentor in terms of her work ethic. So looking at her and how she faced into 
work and the work-life balance and really just rolling up her sleeves and getting on with things. And I had a dad who was brilliant in other ways. He would come and whisk me away on amazing holidays, very adventurous holidays, and take me off around the world and we'd do amazing things, exploring far-flung places, India, the Philippines, Indonesia, often winding up in unusual situations. I remember one particular holiday where we ended up on a, a desert island and got hit by a what felt like a hurricane. It was probably a, a bit of a small storm at the time, but it definitely gave me a sense of adventure. So I guess I got those two things. My mum had got a, a strong work ethic. For my dad, I got this sense of adventure, and those two things blended together in me. And I think I wasn't really a pioneer from a young age, I guess, in that respect, but I certainly was very interested in invention and experimentation and storytelling, those types of activities. I can uh, often recall being chastised in exams for not answering the question. I always wanted to answer the question which is in my head, not the one which is being set. So, yeah, very inquisitive and curious from a young age, I'd say. So after you did your studies, I think you studied in London, and you and I met in the early mid-90s, Gideon, in London. You were in advertising. So how did you find yourself into uh, rooting into that? You can give us a sense of what advertising was like kind of as a, the first part of your journey. So I left uni in the early 90s, and there was a bit of a, uh, a recession at the time. And uh, we were hunting around in my mates for things to do, and one of my friends was looking into advertising and I was actually looking into being an accountant because I really wasn't sure what to do with my, myself. And I looked at advertising. I thought, this looks like fun, broadly speaking. Uh, and the kind of questions which were they were looking at how to create these wonderful campaigns for these, these brands. And, and TV at the time was still a big influence on people's lives. And the agency world was buzzing around Soho Square in London. And I, I was just very much drawn to it. But the thing I was drawn to most was definitely customer and customer insight. What makes people tick? How do you psychologically influence people to, to make them more predisposed, I guess, towards your brand and what you were doing? So I very much enjoyed that element of advertising, customer insight, customer research, and then the creative process, of how you take ideas and flesh them out into something which was real and ended up on the TV or the radio or on posters. So I really enjoyed that element of advertising and, and it, it's still one of most, my most enjoyable memories I guess working in advertising in the 90s uh, in London. Did you launch or promote anything noteworthy that we'd get super excited about? Obviously any old people would remember. A couple of things I guess back then one of the first accounts I worked on was the RAC and then we had things like one of the first mobile phones which were coming out at that time which then became O2 in later years and then a funny little probiotic drink from Japan called Yakult, which I helped to launch in the late 90s, which is still being advertised today. So a whole, a whole bunch of things coming into the market, either things which were coming into the market through technologies or things coming into the market from overseas. All good fun. Yeah, really enjoyable. So Pete, you had a slightly different route. I think you did your bachelor's. You went off to the US, both running and doing your MBA in Florida, from what I remember. And then you rooted yourself into a more into a consulting role and a more perhaps technology and business consulting. Tell us more about that and kind of the foundations that that laid for you. Yeah, that's right, Phil. So as you say, you know, I spent a bit of time in the US, both running and, and studying, and that was a big uh, influence on what I did next, really getting to grips with what, what technology could do. It was around the time of the first original kind of dot-com boom and all the big companies were thinking about what on earth is this internet thing and how do we how do we deal with it but also how do we exploit the opportunities that it presents so i joined a, a us technology consulting business called ctp or cambridge technology partners back in uh, in 96 and one of my first projects was actually in mexico and it was setting up a new phone company so again it was sort of a mobile phone company that was just getting going it was a joint venture between the the Canadian technology company Nortel and Telmex, which was the incumbent phone company there. And it was the first mobile phone company that Mexico had, had launched. It, amazing from a technology standpoint, if you think it wasn't that long ago, but they would literally go around and put a base station on your house if you signed up to a contract. That would be the kind of the way in which the network got built was kind of one customer at a time. So the phone would work in city centers and 
within range of a customer. And it would be literally a base station on their homes. But what struck me, you know, was the ability to set up something from scratch and big companies being able to do that, not just startups. And that's really where I got this sort of corporate venturing, corporate innovation bug that uh, we've been working on ever since. So that's probably the origins. And we haven't looked back since that, that whole realization that big companies can be entrepreneurial if they get it the right environment, if they get the right team together, if they create the right conditions. And that's really what we've been pioneering over the years is helping big established companies to bring new services, new products to market and setting up new ventures from within big companies has been amazing, amazingly satisfying and, and great fun too. So the three of us got to work together at a business called Eden Gene, a business that's actually spun off lots of other interesting ventures. And you know, we've got extensive networks in innovation that all route back to that business. The thing that I remember most, Pete, is that you bought a car off uh, an internet retailer. And at the time, that was considered utter madness. Will this car ever turn up? Yeah, I did. I did. It was an internet retailer. I hadn't seen the car before I bought it. You go on the website, you you, you specify it, and then... I think it was something like four months later, a transporter shows up outside your house and down the ramp comes this brand new car, which it worked and it was brilliant. But at the time, yeah, you're right. Most people thought that was crazy because that was, that was quite an original idea. Of course, nowadays, there's no reason why we think that's crazy. And that, and that for me is one of the principles around the sort of pioneering stuff is we take for granted now what was ridiculous you know, maybe five, 10, 15 years ago, even. And because somebody's made it happen, it makes it acceptable. It makes it de facto, in fact, you know, it's like um, expectations change once the reality is demonstrated to you. And that, that's one of the lessons that I've learned on the way is if you can show somebody how it works and you can demonstrate it, even at a relatively small scale, it changes expectations massively and it shifts whole industries. And so, yeah, buying that car, I think, I don't think it was a huge risk, Bill. I think it was Virgin Cars that was behind it, the brand behind it. Yeah, it showed up late. Yes, I probably did write a letter to the chief exec to complain about the fact it was late. But at the same time, I got this new car. I think I got a good deal on it. And I probably kept it longer than you did. Uh, I seem <laughs> to remember at the time that your turnover rate was about 18 months on average. It was a cool car, let's say that. Look, it's interesting, you're right, the future casts this very long shadow because that was probably, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. You were an early adopter, clearly. I remember at the time Accenture were funding or co-funding a thing called OneSwoop to do something similar. It was very noisy space, but but it all kind of went quite dull. And then I, this week, next week, last week, Kazoo are doing their IPO, $5 billion, something like that. You know, this is just normal. And you're right, there's a journey is that classic S-curve where early adopters do something, all goes quiet, and then suddenly it is normal for everybody. And it's fun, isn't it, to play at those front-end, in those front-end roles, and as you say, demonstrate the future to people, help them get religion, and go and do something. So, so we did some stuff then, but I get the sense that you were always impatient to make your mark, Pete. Consulting is kind of one thing, but and it's important, and we help big businesses do powerful and impactful stuff. But give me a sense. Were you always hungry to be the entrepreneur? Were you always hungry to chase your own vision? Absolutely. And long before we actually did something along those lines, I sort of had those those ambitions. Part of the, the, the early story was as a teenager, I never worked for anybody else. I always did my own thing, whether that was literally gardening or reselling stuff, finding some way of creating an enterprising outcome was something that I was just instinctively keen to do. I think it probably was, was sensible in a way that we got to the stage where you need a certain amount of experience to improve your chances of success, as well as that kind of naive optimism and, and ambition. You definitely need the connections, the relationships that come from maybe your early career in order to find opportunities to realize your ambitions. When we set up Market Gravity, we had a business plan. Most of it was complete work of fiction and, and sort of vision, but there were two things that were really important and they were two lists. There were lists of people that we said over the next six months, these individuals we think will be our customers and we have a high level of confidence that they're going to buy our services if we were to set up a new company. And here's the list of people that would, we'd like to you know, have join us on this amazing journey and become teammates. That was the part of the business plan that really mattered. 
and really pleased to say, looking back, you know, 12 years later, many people were on both lists and, and shifted between the two. And actually, the thing that I've learned so important is more than the idea that you come up with and the business that you create, it's down to the, the people that you, that you work with, the team that you bring together, you know, the band that you play with is much more important than maybe the product or the tune that you're playing at the moment. And so that was the most important thing. And we learned a lot in that time about how to build a culture which could encourage individual ownership and activity, encourage entrepreneurial behaviors, but do it in a really collaborative way, do it in a really supportive way rather than a competitive way within our team. And I think that was a defining factor in some of the success that Market Gravity had. Your side of the equation, give us a sense of what you were trying to achieve with Market Gravity. You know, I got to know you and Pete pretty well and enjoyed that. You bring different things to the table. So Pete clearly has had this passion and been chasing this this zeal and had this vision. Was that the same for you or were you looking to achieve something slightly different? I think it was broadly the same, Phil. I think my journey to Market Gravity was different to Pete's. So I'll just quickly summarise that because... Really, from advertising, which was one, I guess, one chapter in a marketing book, and marketing is like one book on a bookshelf of business, I, I really felt that I didn't have, I had a passion, I suppose, for customer insight, but didn't really have a, a brilliant understanding of the business world. And I was reading everything about the business world and Harvard Business Review to The Economist and trying to understand what is this kind of world of business and didn't really have that in my life. And my father wasn't there to kind of bestow that upon me either. So I didn't really have that. So I, I did my MBA. I got hooked on in the second year. I was at um, London Business School. Great bunch of people. That was the best experience of the MBA, just mixing with loads of other people from very different businesses, very different backgrounds, great diversity, barristers to civil servants to financiers, everyone in between, entrepreneurs, and got hooked in the second year on a course called New Venture Development, which I guess today would be called Entrepreneurship, which is now widely taught in MBAs. Um, but then it was a bit new and different. And I thought this is great because my passion really was storytelling. I wanted to be a writer. So this is about writing a story about a business. That's the way I saw it in terms of um, venture development. So he created a story about a business and he pitched it to some people who were interested called VCs. And I thought, this is, this is fun. This is what I want to do. This brings together storytelling, business, creativity. Okay, great. And then I tried to launch a business called Staying Alive, which is um, a hot, healthy, fast food business. So it was all about the trends of healthy convenience. And I guess today, Staying Alive would probably look a bit like Leon if it had succeeded, which it didn't. So to Pete's point, a little bit naive, didn't quite know what I was doing got to a prototype phase, prototyping the menus of people, ran out of money, ran out of a bit of confidence, scratched my head, and then kind of joined you guys at Eden Gene. And I learned about proposition design, about how you actually create businesses from inside out, and how you actually wrap things like a financial model around that idea, and how you wrap capabilities around that idea, and a go-to-market plan, and all the things you need to mobilize the insight into a business. And that's what Eden Gene taught me in spades. And then to, to quicken it up, at Eden Gene launched a, a business called Home Teen with a, an energy provider called Empower, or RWE, um, as, its, as its parent is called. And really went from designing businesses to actually launching them and running them and running my own section of that business. So trying to deliver my own spreadsheets and my own ideas. And that just taught me heaps in, in that two-year period, just so much. And then that culminated in what Pete was saying, is like this desire to really help big businesses launch exciting new businesses and delight their customers by so doing. And that's what got me hooked. And I thought, this is brilliant. This just brings together all those strands of my life, the creativity, the storytelling, the proposition design, and then the icing on the cake was launching things for real in the market and seeing the impact they could make. And that's what MG for me was all about. Market Gravity was all about delivering real businesses into the market. So you've got your bigger half, you've got your big idea, you've done your schooling, you have a sense of what your 
chasing, is there anything, and you've had an amazing journey over the last decade, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Is there anything, though, that you wish you'd known in those very early days and early years of market gravity? Is there anything that someone had whispered in your ears, if there was something you'd read, if there was a bit of wisdom that had been shared with you that would have made a difference, or were you just kind of headstrong and running at it? Pete? I don't think I would, to be honest, Phil. I think I think even the stuff that we just had to work out on our own was valuable in its own right. So, you know, that idea of having someone sort of whispering, oh, do this, do that. I think that we're the type of characters who kind of need to feel it and see it and learn from our own experiences. And therefore, I'm not, I would say oh, I wouldn't change a thing. But to be honest, the early days of not knowing quite where you're going with a new venture is fascinating it's in you know it's enthralling it's exciting that unpredictability of where you're going to go next I think is is a really valuable part but but I guess there is something in there that says right at the beginning get yourself clarity on your ambition and your intent and then almost stick that on the back burner and do stuff see what happens really clearly come up for air every few months and see how you're doing against that plan I mean we even said in that business plan that I was talking about we're going to create this business. We're going to grow it to a certain scale. We're going to open international offices around the world. And then in six to eight years, we're going to exit through a sale to a large consultancy or a, or a marketing services group. All right. And that was the intent from a commercial standpoint. And that's what we did. But we didn't mention that part for six out of the eight years because it was irrelevant. We had nothing of value that anybody would buy. So... My advice to others doing the same kind of thing is get clarity right at the beginning in terms of ambition and what your intent is, what you're seeking to do. Then just try a whole load of stuff and, and see what sticks and what works really well. Have enough time to kind of come up for air and, and review your progress, but pretty much kind of stay fairly flexible in that time. And then when opportunities arise, don't miss the cue. So recognize the opportunity when it arises and then see how you're going to exploit it most effectively to your own goals. That trying stuff out is, is absolutely part of the entrepreneurial process. There isn't a single right answer or formula. There's definitely not a right path to take. And by experimenting and trying some different routes, you never know quite where you're going to end up, but it's great fun and probably one of the most satisfying parts of the whole experience. One of the things that I was so impressed by at Market Gravity was this sense that it was a platform for everybody in every role to achieve amazing things, to be their best self. There was no expectation you'd necessarily be there forever, but there was something about coming in, throwing yourself in, learning, pushing the business forward, and a genuine openness to anybody coming along and moving the business to a better place developing new capability, new expectations. I love that. It felt like a platform of ambitious people pushing each other forward. And that was that belief was right at the heart, Phil. You know, it's so important in a business like that. If you want to scale it beyond what most people do, and let's, let's face it, there are lots of small consultancies and agencies that set up. I wouldn't sort of claim that we're the, the ultimate entrepreneurs by any means, but actually getting beyond that small team of, three, four, five people, turning it into 20, 30, 40, 50, and then scaling beyond one geography into other countries. These sorts of things are only possible if you believe that everybody in your team has got a massive role to play in that growth story and that everybody in your team has the potential to be a leader of that business. And our model organizationally was come on in, learn the ropes, get tons of help and support, get loads of freedom mind to get it wrong and mess up potentially, but always have some support at the end of a phone if you needed it. But when people did get to the stage where they gained confidence, gained skills, gained the relationships and, and the connections, now set up your own studio, your own practice. You could do that in a new city. You could do it in a new country even. And the career path that we were able to create that way was one of entrepreneurship and establishment of your own studio, your own consultancy. But at the heart of it, yeah, belief that everybody's got that role to play and that collectively we can grow this business. But if it just comes down to the founders, 
pulling or, or pushing in a certain direction, that never happens. So really strong sort of cultural uh, belief right at the beginning. And, and that permeated everything that we did. Gideon, I'm really interested in your perspective on this because you sort of sat on top of the people part of the business for a fair amount of my time in Market Gravity and you were brilliant at it and you, you brought something that I hadn't seen elsewhere. I'm really interested in this this idea that Pete talks about of enabling people, not just taking people with you, but enabling people to be their best. What was your experience of that? And, and also, it can't always be like that. So I'm really interested in kind of the inside story of the people in a people business because a tech business, ah, flog more software, get more users. You can see how that scales, but a people business, wow, that's hard yards, and yet you've done it very successfully. Give us an inside view on the, the challenges of people in a people business. I think the first thing to say is you have to love people. You have to genuinely love people, warts and all. The people of, uh, of MG were its, were its rocket fuel, and, and in a sense, the culture of MG was its only asset, and thus how you design and shape and build that culture becomes your key building block for the whole business. And it's not something we, I personally went in on knowing how to do. And it's certainly not something, having left MG, where I could say that I am expert at it. It is a, a kind of a journey of passion and exploration. And actually, to your earlier point, some naivety is actually very helpful. That's almost your... Uh, some of your rocket fuel comes from naivety, not not knowing the answers, not looking at things from an expert point of view, not in this case, not being an HR of an HR background. So at MG, we didn't have um, an expert management team as such. We didn't have an HR department. So everything was done by our own experience, a learning mindset, a growth mindset. So really the culture of MG, as Pete said, was adopting a coaching mindset it was really about bringing in talented people, people who are nine times out of 10, probably more talented than myself and Pete, helping those people to quickly kind of get down the learning curve in terms of what MG was trying to achieve with its clients. And then there was an important dimension of the, the way which we help people look at their careers. So we looked at them through leadership and skills, but the third dimension was really important to us was entrepreneurship. And we were looking for ways in which our team could explore entrepreneurial behaviors. So everything from allowing the team to spend a thousand pounds on themselves in terms of their own learning and development, anything they wish to do. And we had lots of people do lots of different things from photography courses to creative storytelling, to acting classes, all kinds of things, to helping people then express entrepreneurship in the business. So as Pete said, are you ready to kind of go and build your own version of the business almost like a franchise model taking the brand taking the capabilities taking the network go and build something yourself around yourself and start to kind of grow and scale that and at some point there might be an opportunity for you then to take the whole of an mg business and put it somewhere else into another geography and to start your own version of mg and your own version is the important piece here because as long as you are transporting the values and you were transporting, I guess, the purpose of MG, which was to, to launch new businesses into the market, to delight customers. As long as you were transporting those elements, the, the business you could grow around it could actually be quite different. And actually, the, the business in Edinburgh, which had quite a different set of clients, was quite different to the business in London. Again, the business in Toronto was quite different. The business in New York was different again. And then we even pushed east uh, and looked at Singapore and, and then to Hong Kong and then Sydney. These businesses are all different flavors of MG run by the local team and the local leaders allowed to express themselves in their own way, but all bubbling up to the same purpose and the same vision. So that was something we wanted from the get-go and we continuously, I suppose, experimented our, our way there, allowing failure to happen at times but always coaching and supporting the team to be the very best leaders and entrepreneurial leaders they could be. So you have this business which scales, you have a vision, you chase it, as Pete said, you just kind of get on and do it, and you, you had your two lists, your clients and your talent. And whatever it was, that combination worked. And over a decade, you grew the business. I was with you in the journey up to about 50 or 60, and then you grew way bigger than that. But the one of the things that we 
I think we recognize as often as entrepreneurs, we tell stories of our success in a way which is which sounds a little bit idealized. And the truth is that journey to success, that journey to greatness, the journey to your exit has ups and downs, which are perhaps hidden often when people write the stories. I'm really interested to to get a sense of some of the challenges that you faced, both as leaders and you know as entrepreneurs. Was there any time that you thought you had your dark night of the soul? You thought, crikey, this might all fall apart. Just give us a sense of how you dealt with the reality of the difficulties in scaling, because it can go wrong very quickly in a consulting business. Pete. So I think every business, uh, every successful scalable business has has, uh, has challenges on the way. Absolutely part of the part of the process of growth. At the time, it feels horrible. You look back and you're right, you do have these sort of rosy view on, on, on things afterwards. It could be anything from just the basics of losing a pitch that you thought you were going to win. The, uh, the pain that that causes and it lingers for a bit and we used to agonize over that. Whether you just sort of try and put it behind you and brush it off and stop being so negative, you know, or whether you take the uh, the All Blacks approach, which is feel that pain for a little while, never ever forget how it feels, don't let it happen again, and then move on. This sort of thing. So yeah, some of these were literally down to competitive situations. Other, the, the most painful though are, are always back when you have a you have challenges that individuals and the team have, and, and you've got to help them out with. And their personal challenges often rather than commercial ones. It's the most challenging, it's the most difficult, but it's also the most rewarding is the inner people business. Everybody's got something going on some of the time, right? And you learn that very, very quickly. You don't always know that at the time, but you know, you know afterwards and you realize. So I think there's human challenges that everybody had in, in a story of growth. Uh, and then there's commercial challenges, as you, you kind of implied, Phil, which is in a business like ours, you need to match the demand quite closely to the supply, which means make sure you've got enough work in the pipeline to keep whatever size your team is gainfully employed, um, you know, on challenges and projects and, and bringing in income. It's a very good industry to be in when you're busy. Cash flow is very strong. It's a very quick way of losing money when you're not selling effectively because people still expect salaries and still expect to get paid and that kind of thing. So of course, there's always commercial challenges. They go in cycles. If you can't live with that, don't do it. That's just part of the course. The most challenging ones are obviously where you have where you have sort of personal situations that people need to deal with and work feels like it gets in the way of that. I'm pleased to say that we weathered any rough patches, came out the other side, got back on the growth track. Uh, and continued. And that was testament to the culture and the strength and the resilience of the team that we built around us. But every business has those sort of challenges. So we'll talk in a minute about how you got close to Deloitte Digital and the transaction. But let's talk about your clients a little bit, because you guys introduced this language around corporate entrepreneur, and you created and, and hosted for many years the Corporate Entrepreneur Awards, famously wrote a book on the topic together with Polly. And it's at the heart, I think, of, of what you guys believe. Your mission is built around enabling corporate entrepreneurs to thrive and succeed inside large organizations. And because you've been chasing those people and coaching and encouraging those people, you have a, a network of corporate entrepreneurs that, that you've built things with. I'm really interested in some of the stories that stay in your mind, the experiences you had, because that's really hard. If entrepreneurship is hard, then corporate entrepreneurship I think is really hard. Why don't you give a shout out to some of the people that have most impressed you or some of the most enjoyable things that you've been involved in? I'll kick us off, Phil. So for me, I'm going to mention one person. I think Pete probably knows who it's going to be. David McMillan. So David McMillan, who's now leading the Prudential in, in the UK. David, uh, we've known since all early 2000s. He was the marketing director at Standard Life Bank at the time. He then went on to head up the customer transformation program at Aegon, and then most recently, as I say, at Prudential. But the reason why David is such a, an amazing client and friend, and actually he's inspirational, it kind of gets to the heart, really, of what corporate entrepreneurship is. What is it? What, what, why is it hard? And it's really hard because big businesses, broadly speaking, are geared up to do the things they already do, but trying to do them even better. They're always geared up to do 
more efficiency, I guess, into their business model. Whereas when you're trying to do something corporate entrepreneurship orientated, you're trying to change the way that business operates. You're trying to do something new and different and launch something different from that business, which changes the whole super tanker. And what does that start with? It starts with a really strong vision and sense of purpose. And David was the most amazing orator. He's the most amazing storyteller, whether it's five people, 50 people, 500 people, he can hold an audience in the palm of his hand and take them through his vision and his story for that business. At the end of that, I guess it's almost sermon. You feel like a disciple ready to go out and kind of spread the word, spread the gospel and actually make things happen, make a difference to that business. Having a client like that is incredibly empowering and powerful and enables you to go on and do amazing things. And having worked with David for 15 years, every single time we've had the pleasure of working with David, brilliant things happen as a consequence, as a consequence of his personal passion, his ability to mobilize people, and his understanding of all the areas of a business. Commercially, he's amazing, marketing brain on him, and and a great understanding of technology. So he's got all those three aspects in him. But the thing which kind of makes him and other corporate entrepreneurs, I think, work in big businesses is that they're bold. They are bold people. They are prepared to take it to the market and make things happen. And David is certainly one of those. I think what's interesting, Phil, if you think about, uh, you mentioned the Corporate Entrepreneur Awards. So that's an event that we've hosted for, I don't know, the last 10 years plus, recognizing and celebrating the the impact that big company entrepreneurs can have. There've been dozens of winners of uh, various categories over the years. The ones that tend to stick in your mind are the ones who have the biggest purpose, the most enduring impact. And the ones that maybe have changed some of their industries by their early activities to our earlier point around the shadow that that you know, is cast into the future by their actions. So I think about, we have Virgin Galactic one year and there's a business with a few ups and downs and still the news in the last few days, literally about the third generation of spaceship that they've just uh, unveiled and, and are ready to, uh, to start uh, looking at commercial trips again. It's the industries that have shifted. We didn't call it the sharing economy at the time, but the very first winner of the Corporate Entrepreneur Awards was the Barclays Bike Hire Scheme. Didn't even call it that back in 2010, but that is a great example of a sharing economy business like Uber and Airbnb that came, that, that came along at a similar kind of time. We looked at businesses that use DNA to prescribe the sporting uh, sort of training schedules. We looked at charging uh, solutions for electric vehicle networks. We had winners who were in there changing the nature of how people pay for their retirement and their financial future. All of these things, massive social impact, some technological change required to make it happen, but at the heart of it, a real kind of sense of purpose and a need to change the status quo. And I think that's the, the defining feature of these pioneers who are at the heart of big company innovation is that they genuinely want to change the status quo and they're doing it from within a company that has the assets, the scale, the ability to make stuff happen. But, and this is the why it's so tricky, often those who maybe benefit from the status quo in the short term and therefore the boldness that Gideon's talking about is about overcoming your own inertia and the inertia of your own organisation who maybe is doing quite nicely today, thank you. That's damn right. I mean, it's true that great consultants need great clients. And for the kind of work that you do and the kind of work we've done together, that's really important. I think just an observation that that struck me, there were quite a number of clients who, when they came to the end of their role in the corporate organization, they may have done a, a stint with market gravity. And I thought that was really interesting where people might come in and take a specialist role on a project or for a period of time didn't happen a lot, but it did happen. And I really liked the integrity that that reflected. The fact that the organization is the same on the inside as it is on the outside. This consultants are often thought to do things to companies and you can't design the future that way. So when people really get to know the integrity of the team and the DNA of the business, it's 
obviously a, a natural step to be an insider as well as a, a client. And you can play those two roles because these things are so intermeshed, I think. So look, you've had a, you, a, an amazing journey. You had this decade of growth. You picked up some great clients. You worked on some fantastic agendas. And then at some point, either something, a switch flicked for you guys or somebody knocked on the door. Nobody knocked on the door. Let's be honest. You got an email or a phone call. But at some point, a conversation started, and that conversation ended with you joining the family at Deloitte Digital. Give us a sense of how preordained that was, a sense of your timing and whether it felt like great timing. And also, as much as you're happy to, I'm really interested in your two or three years that you have with Deloitte and reflections on that. Maybe, do you want to start? Sure thing. I think the journey into Deloitte Digital probably started several years before we joined. We had always been collaborators. So in effect, we were designers and prototypers of new businesses. And in order to kind of scale those businesses in the market, we always worked alongside big technology businesses, whether it be Deloitte Digital or whether it be a, a Capco or an IBM at some point, or in, indeed internal IT, at some point we're going to team up to get something launched at scale. And thus, that was a very natural part of our process. And we had done a very good couple of projects, actually, with Deloitte Digital. One at Aegon, with the aforementioned uh, David McMillan, um, launching a business called Retire Ready back in about 2012. And then after that, again, at Clydesdale Yorkshire Bank, under the leadership of Helen Page, and launching a, a direct-to-customer um, bank, which was more, which was digital, digital-only bank called B, going after a younger customer base than CYB traditionally had. And again, working very much hand-in-glove with Deloitte Digital to get everything launched quickly and at scale. And I guess our relationship worked well in, in projects where we would kind of own, I suppose, the, the proposition and the customer and Deloitte would own the technology and in banking, a lot of the regulation, which wraps around that. We got to know each other well. I had quite a few conversations with, with DD and, and the guys there, and it felt like a good fit. And we sealed a kind of a, I wouldn't say a deal, but certainly a conversation was had over a couple of glasses of, of Amaretto in Florida, as it happens, with one of the partners at DD, who's a, a good friend of ours. And we said, this is a good idea. Let, let's make this happen. Because together, we launch things which are genuinely breakthrough um, and robust. Uh, and that was what we wanted to achieve together. Breakthrough propositions underpinned by really robust delivery. I'm struck that Tony Blair and Gordon Brown had their Granita moment and you guys had your Amaretto moment. <laughs> I'm excited by that. Um, Pete, I'm really interested in, in what it feels like as an entrepreneur to be having that conversation because Market Gravity was a, a family. It was a very close-knit organization, built around a culture, built for a purpose, but you're an entrepreneur. You guys are both entrepreneurs. And so when you get to a place where you've achieved something great, achieved something, I suspect, much, much bigger and more successful perhaps than you dared to imagine when you set out, do you get an opportunity to reflect? Uh, and what reflections did you have in that moment? So the most the most important thing from an entrepreneurial journey is here's an opportunity to take our value proposition, scale it up significantly, transport it around the world, and amplify the impact that we're going to have. That that's why we joined. That's why we sold the company. That's why Market Gravity is a Deloitte digital business. It can have so much more impact now than it could as an individual business. And in the two or three years post acquisition, the numbers of people who've been either trained up in the method that we used to follow, the numbers of people who've joined the core team, the numbers of new locations that we'd set up together around the world has just exploded. And so as an entrepreneur, it's incredibly satisfying to see something that you create from scratch become part of one of the biggest, most successful, best professional services organizations in the world and it works, right? So that was uh, incredibly satisfying to the extent that the only thing that can compete with that is the lure of another entrepreneurial venture and another startup. And that's tough to compete with, let's face it. So nothing but positive reflections on, on the experience of 
launching, growing, scaling, selling, and then exiting a business. You know, it's a privilege. Every every day has been a privilege of doing that. We've met so many fantastic people on route and we've made so many friends on route. But the only thing that can compete with that, as I say, is is do it again or do something else. And that's where we're at now. So, you know, we're launching a new business, Studio Works. We'll tell you more about that, Phil. But um it's the it's the reason why we're off on, on another venture route and uh, a very exciting time well let's segue into that tell us about the bridge from one to the other clearly a decade having the growth experience that you had you learn a lot about yourself and i'm interested what did you learn about yourself and what did you learn about business and and how has that sort of led you guys to to kick off studio works and tell us more about that i think to begin with you learn that your own sort of field of influence is limited and you can't much as you might believe it in the early years you can't try and do everything yourself <laughs> which is a mistake that many entrepreneurs make when they launch a business and think that you can literally do everything uh, and and juggle so many different uh, keep so many plates spinning or whatever the right the right cliche is very quickly becomes apparent that the only way to scale is through teamwork is only a way to scale is through distributed leadership through uh, a very flat and open and and, and free structure and therefore, that's kind of the realization that the new business that we're building is actually about helping independent businesses to scale their own and accelerate the growth of their own agencies and consultancies. So Studio Works is about investing in those pioneering independent agencies and consultants and giving them the, the backing, the tools, the experience that we've gained ourselves in order to help them to grow faster than they would do otherwise and and to realize the ambitions that they've set out for their own studios so gideon bring this to life for us a little bit what kind of creative agencies consulting firms give us a sense of the the character and the dna of the organizations you're working with and you're hoping to work with i think um we're looking for agencies which really have a pioneering spirit so some agencies who want to kind of create something which is bigger than they are individually and have a purpose they want to deliver into the world so for example, one of the agencies I'm working with, Living Proof. Living Proof are very inspirational. I worked with them whilst they were all students with a, a wonderful program called Year Here, which is all about social entrepreneurship. Three of them have set up Living Proof, Rosie, Miriam, and Winnie. Uh, and the whole concept of Living Proof is to bring youthful, some often marginalized voices into the boardroom of large corporates and help influence change in large corporates. So they work with groups of talented uh, youths. They gather up insights. They take on board some of those young people into their team and train them up insight and research and, and consulting skills and facilitation skills. And they allow those people then to go and deliver their product for them into the corporate space and deliver their stories to corporate leaders. And they, the project they've done recently is, is incredibly topical, sadly, in a, in, a, in a tragic way as well. It's all about safe spaces for women in, in the UK. And, you know, in breakneck speed, they've collected the stories of 600 women. They've then used their process with their team um, to generate wonderful ideas for how spaces could be made safer in the UK for women and presented it to a mixed audience a few weeks ago. Um, including Parliament, the NHS, the police force, and so on, to bring about change, real change, and, and then use that presentation, not just to say, this is what we've done, use it as a working session to say, well, what are we now going to do about it? How are we actually going to collaborate around these ideas? And how are we actually going to deliver better safety for women in, in, in the UK? And I think that is such a, a great example, I guess, of the type of pioneering agency we'd like to have at studio works and we really want to help them to grow according to their own ambitions whatever their ambitions might be and we can help them to do that through a number of our services commercial or growth strategy or investment capital and, and really helping them to kind of accelerate their own ambition that's one example i'm sure pete can um expand and tell you a few more yeah, the other thing, Phil, is that, that many of these companies, as you can imagine, they're, they're incredibly creative and really good at the work. 
So really good at the client facing stuff, but maybe not so hot. And they'll be the first to admit it on the commercial side of running a business, of establishing and particularly scaling a business. And which is a, which is a discipline in its own right, that why, why would the best creative brains also be good at the commercial disciplines of contracts, of, of statements of work, of invoicing, and all of those boring but necessary things that you just got to get right if you're going to reinvest the cash that you create uh, and you generate and reinvest it in growth. So this is the other angle on, on the business. We're developing a technology platform which takes all of those tasks and actually you know makes it really easy and enabling creative people to be commercial leaders is the role that we want to play in this and more examples like Gideon's uh, just shared there's going to be dozens of companies like that over the next few months who are going to be coming onto that platform benefiting from the commercial sort of efficiency and, and the growth potential and then being able to, um, to to launch new services that way. Love it. Look, guys, it's been great to have you on the show today. I've had the pleasure to to have seen you go through this whole entrepreneur life cycle. I've enjoyed some of that journey with you, and uh, I've learned an immense, immense amount from both of you. Starting with you, maybe, Pete, if people want to find out more about you or about StudioWorks, where should they look? Yeah, I always find uh, I always find LinkedIn to be a good place to start, Phil. So, you know, it's a great way of keeping in touch. So people can reach me through LinkedIn. They can email me, Pete at studioworks.net and more than happy to kick around any entrepreneurial challenge, any commercial business opportunity, just fascinated in that whole topic. So I would welcome anybody to get in touch to talk about that kind of thing. Gideon, how can people stalk you? Same, LinkedIn and I'm Gideon uh, at studioworks.net. So you can reach me there. And as Pete says, always happy to talk to new agencies, founders, uh, work through their challenges uh, and hopefully bring them on board and see what we can do together. Awesome. Well, guys, good luck with all that you've got planned with StudioWorks and beyond. I hope history repeats itself. I can't wait to see what you've got in store. Thank you so much for joining me today on Pioneers Wanted. Thanks, Phil. Thank you, Phil. It was great to catch up with Pete and Gideon again. I, I worked with these guys in two different businesses for a number of years, and I hold them both in the highest regard. Do check out StudioWorks as well. It's a great concept. I'm sure it will make a significant difference to small and independent agencies as they start out on their own journey to scale. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please do like, subscribe and review us. Go to pioneerswanted.com to buy a hardback copy of the Pioneers Wanted book or to Amazon to get the ebook or audiobook. Pioneers Wanted is produced by Hunch, the strategic innovation practice and the home of pioneer leadership. Check us out at brilliantHunch.com or follow me on Twitter at PJA Clark.